Hi everyone, welcome back to the London Health Podcast and our next Homeless Health episode. The series is inspired by the stories we tell ourselves to sleep well and we'll continue to dig into assumptions about homelessness through honest conversations, whilst also highlighting the work happening in London within the NHS, third sector organisations and local authorities to bring about transformational change for this population. My name's Leisha and I'm Communications Officer for the Healthy London Partnership Homeless Health Programme. I'm joined by Lisa Collins, who is Deputy Programme Director for the Homeless Health Programme at HLP, and Dr Binta Sultan, who is a Consultant Physician in Inclusion Health with a Find and Treat team at University College Hospital in London. In our last episode, we recapped on the past year and a half and what the London Homeless Health response to the COVID-19 pandemic looked like talking about the impact of everyone in, what lessons were learned and what work is still needed. Today, we're thinking about the people behind the labels, the effects of language such as rough sleepers or homeless people. And we also want to think about how people who may or may not work in healthcare navigate seeing people experiencing homelessness on the street. They want to help, but they're unsure how or what to say. So to begin, Binta, it would be great if you could tell us a bit about your background, your work and how you came to work in inclusion health. Sure. So um, the first thing I'll say is that I haven't had a direct route into inclusion health. Um, it's been quite circuitous, but all of the experiences and, and knowledge that I've gained have contributed to where I am today in my work in inclusion health. Um, I've been providing outreach healthcare uh, to vulnerable populations um, directly for about the last 11 years or so um, and my interest in improving health for socially excluded populations is what kind of uh, led me to doing medicine in the first place and, but what I found was a lack of um, education and training within medicine about inclusion health um, and throughout my training I've tried to seek out experience of working with inclusion health groups to better understand needs and, and how we can improve health and reduce health inequalities. So I completed my training in hospital medicine um, with an interest in infectious diseases and tropical medicine, which tends to disproportionately affect inclusion health populations. Um, and I undertook a diploma in tropical medicine, which led me to have a better understanding of the role of public health. Um, and systems in in health and how people access health and health inequalities. Um, I then went on to do a master's in public health in the US um, and this gave me a much better understanding about the importance of structural factors, um, politics, economics and health systems that can lead to inequalities in health and I returned to the UK and undertook um, training program in public health in the UK and had a lot of experience working both in the local public health system and also with um, uh, the Health Protection Agency which then became uh, Public Health England and was involved in quite a lot of infectious diseases outbreaks and the swine flu epidemic um, and I enjoyed that work but felt there was something missing for me um, and what it was, was, was seeing patients and having conversations and that clinical interaction. Um, and so that led me to rethink um, uh, a pure kind of public health career. And um, I experienced my own personal bereavement, which uh, my mum died 
during that that kind of training program and it just made me stop and reflect and think about the work that I was doing and and um, the satisfaction with the work that I was doing and that missing piece was really important so I left public health training after two years and went in, back into clinical medicine and trained in HIV and sexual health medicine which is um, a specialty that kind of almost perfectly there's a perfect interaction of public health and clinical um, experience and clinical care um, which really kind of um, oh, trying to articulate it best. Um, it it kind of satisfied that that um, ability to interact with people, but also take a step back and and look at the 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 kind of wider systemic issues that lead to people um, experiencing health inequalities. And I finished my training in, in HIV and sexual health with an interest in research and continued public health research looking at health inequalities. Um, also developed some experience um, as a sexual offences examiner with the Havens. So um, providing clinical care to both adults and children who experience sexual assault. Um, and again, that really highlighted to me um, the kind of systemic and political factors that lead to someone becoming vulnerable, um, experiencing vulnerability. And I worked as a local consultant in HIV medicine at the Royal Free and Mortimer Market Centre and then began a PhD um, looking at improving hepatitis C care for people who experience homelessness and that's how I came to work with Find and Treat and that was about two and a half years ago um, and I was working with Find and Treat when the Covid pandemic began um, and have been working with them over the last year and a half um, to support them with the, the clinical and public health work that we've been doing um, and it's been a huge learning experience for me as well, both as a clinician and a leader um, within the field of inclusion health. Um, and I've learned a great deal. And that's how I am where I am. Bit of a long-winded story, but... Uh, no, no, it's really interesting. All the different roles and the training you've had, which has led you to this point, and it kind of seems like your work now really does encompass all of that. And I suppose, Lisa... You have worked in healthcare for over 30 years. Before joining HLP, you hadn't specifically worked in homeless health. So what have you learned over the past few months, which has surprised you the most or really stuck in your mind? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Alicia. I think the biggest thing for me, I think, has been two, two issues. One, I think the lack of education that healthcare managers have around the homeless health population. And just to give you an example, I've worked in healthcare management for 30 years uh, in the UK and overseas across a wide spectrum of services. And homeless health never really came onto my radar until I was a general manager in medicine. And it was when we were discharging patients during winter period, which is always tricky in hospitals. Um, and I think I mentioned this in the last podcast and I asked my nurse director at the time, you know, what happens if a patient's homeless? And the response was, well, they would be discharged onto the street if they had nowhere else to go. And that horrified me. Um, and when I when I questioned uh, the nurse director a little bit more, and she said, well, it's a lifestyle choice. And it just got me thinking about that when I came into this role. 
And quite a few people I've spoken to who's worked in this area for a long time have said, you know, of all the thousands of patients and people that they've spoken to who are experiencing homelessness, never one person has said it's a lifestyle choice. It might be the only choice they have, but it's not been this lifestyle choice. And so for me, I think this there's a real lack of education for managers in healthcare. You know, we all know about paediatrics, we all know about uh, cancer, heart disease, and this is a this feels like a hidden uh, patient group, a hidden patient population. And I think so. For first, firstly, is to highlight that. And I think if we can increase by doing these podcasts, the education to healthcare managers like myself to be more aware of this this hidden patient population uh, I think that that's something really important and then the second one then just touching upon the lifestyle choice I think it's the the assumptions that we have uh, again as a health service manager my assumptions around people experiencing homelessness how they access healthcare. Uh, you know I've been thinking a lot the last couple of months about addictions and my assumptions around addictions and addictions for people who are, are experiencing homelessness. And again, there's something about, is that a lifestyle choice? And what I've come to understand from working within this amazing team the last couple of months, addictions aren't always a lifestyle choice. Addictions are a coping mechanism. And, and I think it's really important to have just some of these really basic conversations around some of the things that we are making assumptions for, for this patient group. Um, so I think they they they've been you know two of the big things that have impacted me over the last couple of months, alongside having access to a huge amount of people who have been dedicated to working with this patient population for many many years, and um, that's been really inspiring. And and then just touching upon COVID, my perception coming in is that COVID has brought all of these issues from the, what I like to call in healthcare management, the too hard box, where, you know, as healthcare managers, things tend to get pushed in there because they're just too complicated to deal with. And it feels like homeless health, from my perspective, has come out of the too hard box during COVID. And it's really highlighted some of the really tricky issues uh, that we that we need to think about as managers working within this area and how we can create transformation and how we can create change for this patient group. So, um, yeah, th those have been the big ticket items for me the last couple of months. Thanks, Lisa. That's really interesting. And yeah, I, I think on that note, on on the lifestyle choice, I mean, Binter, is, is that something which you have come across from colleagues who, who may not work directly with inclusion health groups? Have you heard them say similar before or and also have you noticed a difference kind of pre and post COVID looking in those two lenses? Has there been a change in assumptions or attitudes amongst other colleagues? And I mean, I suppose, what would your work, your outreach work specifically, what has that taught you? And what would you want to tell people like myself, like Lisa, who are working in healthcare, we haven't got that specific experience ourselves. Is there anything which you would really want to to shed light on yeah um so just to follow up on what lisa was saying and to echo what lisa was saying about um and to answer your question about lifestyle choices and how we view people who um have problems with substance misuse um or alcohol issues um 
and how we think about those as individual choices that people have made. I think it's something that uh, both as a society and the general population, we've been conditioned um, to think of people who struggle um, as being something different to who to us and um, separate from us. Um, and that those issues are individual to them. Um, and we are not, uh, have previously not been as aware about the systems and um, policies that lead to someone being vulnerable um, and the political and economic um, aspects of our society, which exacerbate someone's vulnerability um, and can move them from uh, experiencing trauma into then having to cope with that trauma using drugs or alcohol. Um, and it's something that we think about, have been conditioned to think about as a society, but also working within healthcare, we have the same issues. And I think part of the reason for that is one, we haven't had the experience or the training to think about these things um, more in depth and to think about um, what are the, the kind of systematic, the system issues that lead to someone becoming vulnerable. And also we haven't had experience of working with or um, uh, dealing with people with those sorts of vulnerabilities. So the quite amazing thing I think about finding treat is within our team, we have people who have lived experience of homelessness or substance misuse. And so they are my colleagues and they're my friends. And my, even having worked in inclusion health for so long, having that experience of one-to-one -one conversations with them and their own experiences and seeing people who have those experiences and those vulnerabilities as individuals um, and the impact of our choices within healthcare that can make um, someone feel more excluded um, and not understanding that impact because we don't have representation within our organisations of people who've had that experience. We haven't had the training within our healthcare systems um, of people who experience exclusion and how they experience the healthcare system. You know, uh, our healthcare system has been designed for the majority um, and essentially people who are relatively well and relatively financially stable and um, what that then does is it excludes people who don't have those experiences and so even you know hospitals we've got a I'm looking at a big glass building in the in the center of town which is UCLH which serves a, a very diverse population. But the expectation is that people come, will come, are able to travel to a hospital, have the financial ability to travel to a hospital, have the sort of um, security um, and support to remember their appointment, to come to their appointment, to take in the information that we give them at that appointment. And all of those things, if we're not, conscious of how that um, excludes people um, 
leads to exacerbation of the problem. So I think um, my experience over the last year and a half of working within the Find and Treat team has really kind of brought that um, into focus. Um, and my experience of working in inclusion health and training in medicine um, has really highlighted to me how little we know about um, uh, and the experiences of people um, who are vulnerable and are excluded. Um, I can't remember the rest of your question, Alicia. <laughs> no, that's no, that's a perfect bin. So I think really insightful and just drawing on how much we can learn from peers with lived experience is really important to highlight. Uh, and it sounds like you have noticed there is that difference coming yeah, out from so side of COVID. Yeah. Yeah, the shift in the lens. Yeah, as you say, COVID has really shone this bright light on inequalities within our society and the and health inequalities in particular we've seen you know particular communities absolutely decimated by covid um and those communities are deprived they're minority minoritized communities um and the kind of experience of that and um, has has kind of shone a light on it, and it's it's led to both um, uh, the general public, but also healthcare professionals really understanding how um, uh, the systems we have in place affect people's access to healthcare and how they can improve their health. Um, and so, there, I've, I've definitely seen a shift both in terms of clinical leadership, but also from clinicians in thinking about health inequalities, um, just because of the pandemic and how it's just, it, it's been hard to ignore. Um, yeah, so that definitely sounds like a silver lining from the pandemic response in that greater understanding and awareness of this population. Um, and I suppose it also highlights how there really are so many different types of people experiencing homelessness. It's not just one type, one type of person. I think a lot of people might assume it's a male in their 30s to 40s, but actually people of different ages, background circumstances can find themselves experiencing homelessness. And this kind of leads on to the next topic which we wanted to discuss, which is how colleagues within the sector who we're working with, we, we are often hearing terms like people experiencing homelessness or people experiencing rough sleeping rather than homeless people or rough sleepers. And I just wonder if this awareness of language, how what what impacts does it have when working either directly with people like yourselves, Binter, or perhaps behind the scenes like yourself, Lisa, what awareness does this have when it comes to providing services or designing transformation work? Um, I could pick up about the point of, um, I guess, labelling people. Mm, um, yeah. So I think it's it's really important, both for all minoritised groups and, and socially excluded groups, um, when we label people as a specific, so if we label someone as homeless, we're assigning almost a characteristic to them that they're homeless. Um, we 
it's a method, whether it be intentional or not intentional, of um, taking away their humanity and individuality and taking away their um, us being able to see them as a whole person and their all of those experiences that they have had and all of their knowledge that they have and what they can also contribute. Um, and I think when we label people as homeless, we we put them into a box, which is easy for us as a system to then try and fix their situation or fix their issue. But it it what it does what it leads to is a process of um, moving their individuality and and kind of denying their humanity in a way. Um, and it also um, so that kind of leads to then them not feeling seen. Um, and it also leads to us thinking that, for example, homelessness is a binary state. You're either homeless or you're not. Um, and it's not. It's a it's it's much more complex than that. Someone just doesn't suddenly become homeless. And if you just define them as homeless, you um, are taking away that degree of complexity that that can lead to them experiencing homelessness so there's a whole kind of cascade of vulnerability which leads to someone eventually experiencing homelessness and if you just look at them as homeless you're not really understanding the complexity of both the process that led to that person experiencing homelessness and the complexity of that individual um, Mm. And Binta, I just wanted to just um, follow on from what you said as well, at least just to kind of give you my perspective on that. Um, and I agree with everything that you've said. And I, and I guess there's two points for me. Uh, I'm quite old school. I've been in the NHS a long time. And uh, whilst I'm not a clinician, I was taught in the early days, whilst I was a receptionist, you know, patient facing, you treat patients like a member of your family. So that's always stayed with me. So I think in terms of the language that we use, I would use language, you know, and, and address somebody as a human being rather than putting them in the box. And I think the the problem is when we attach labels to people, for me, it feels like we're just psychologically keeping them stuck. Um, and as healthcare managers trying to work within this system, we're trying to help people move out of that situation and it feels like if we put a label onto that person then we're not allowing them the opportunity to move on from that I think it, you know they're, they're going to be in a vulnerable situation as it is and psychologically if they start hearing these labels then I, I feel that that would keep them stuck and it would somehow psychologically make it harder for them to move out of that situation so that that was just the two bits that I wanted to add to that that's great. Thank you both. The, the labelling, it, it really is quite a difficult thing to to think about. You know, quite recently I was coming out of the train station and a person came up to me and said, I'm sorry to bother you, I'm a homeless person. And with my HLP homeless health hat on, I just instantly thought, well, not a homeless person, that's a label which probably he's heard people saying to him about him. And it does just show how actually it's not so clear cut as we say, it's not a one way 
state to be in, there are ways out. So for someone like myself who is just walking past a person who is either sleeping rough or asks if we can offer them some help, you don't always know what the correct thing to do is. You know, I, I want to help, but I'm not sure what to say or what to do. And I just wonder if, Binta, maybe from your outreach work, from the conversations you have um, through your work, is there kind of practical things you can tell listeners like myself to say or to do when they want to help but not sure what the best thing to say is and, and that could be generally or from a health perspective because sometimes I think if I had some spare disposable face masks is it helpful to offer a face mask if I haven't got anything else or is it encroaching on their personal choice so yeah any, any thoughts you might have on that Binta? Yeah thanks Alicia I think it, it kind of follows on from our previous conversation about um, looking at people directly as individuals um, and I think all of us find it hard to look at vulnerability and when mm. you see someone who's sleeping on the streets that's the kind of epitome of vulnerability and it's it's much easier for us to look away and often people just you know most people would walk past um and I think it comes down to seeing that person as an individual and engaging with them as an individual you know we recognize our limitations in that we're not going to be able to solve that individual's problems but we can treat them with respect and acknowledge their presence um and acknowledge their situation and have a conversation. Um, you know, even I, as someone who works within the sector, you know, it's it can be difficult, but it's just, you know, talking to that individual, just acknowledging their presence can sometimes be enough. Um, and just having a conversation with them um, and asking them if they need anything, if they need a face mask or if there's anything else that you can do um, to support them. Um, and in terms of uh, trying to address some the vulnerability as an individual, I would recommend getting in touch with the street outreach team, um, the local street outreach team. And you can usually do that via um, the street link um yeah who uh and so just maybe just getting some contact details for that person if they want to um give them and would like the street team outreach team to to kind of come and touch base with them knowing their exact location is helpful for the street outreach teams sure and where they might be um but i think the first step is engaging and mm. um, and speaking to people as individuals that's great. It was, yeah, really helpful, practical things which you can do. But I think, as you say, the conversation and just recognising someone as an individual, first of all, is a great first step you can take. So that's something to mull over, I think, as we go about our days. And, and Lisa, I, I don't know if there's anything, kind of if you've had similar encounters or if your own thoughts on this have shifted from through our work on the Homeless Health Programme. Have you noticed any changes in what you would you were thinking before from your general management experience yeah thanks alicia and um yeah my my perception has definitely shifted and i like what binta said as well about you know asking that individual what they need because you know what i've noticed 
within myself when I uh, walk past somebody who is living on the street. My instinct is to give them food and drink. Um, so, but I, but I noticed recently, and it was the last time I was in London. It was one of those really hot days, and I'd walk past um, this gentleman who was outside Pret, and I said, "Can I get you some food or drink?" And he just said, oh, "I just want to have a coffee." And I, you know, and I was like, "Can I buy you a sandwich as well?" You know, and and I guess what that highlights is my perception of what he needed, rather than me asking him the question, "What do you need?" You know, what do you need right now? Uh, and I think that just feels really important. Um, like Alicia said, you know, your instinct might be to want to give somebody some face mask, but actually it's asking that individual, what do you need in this moment? How can I help you uh, with that need? Um, that might be something as simple as buying a cold bottle of water or a coffee or a sandwich, um, you know, what, what, whatever that is. But that feels somehow very important um that that question and how how we frame it to that individual and i guess what i'm starting to think now is from listening to bint to speak is prevention and maybe that's the next the next podcast to think about prevention how do we you know how do we put prevention in place how do we put those safety nets in place if a lot of the people who are, are in this situation they're vulnerable because of past trauma you know how far back do we go um, how can we put in those support systems and mechanisms to help people not end up in this situation? So, but that's a huge topic in itself. And uh, maybe Binta, you'll join me on another podcast to, to, to sort of talk through those those ideas. But that's really what I wanted to just share. My final reflections is the question to the individual as to what do they need right now in that moment? Thanks, yeah. Lisa. Lee, sorry, Alicia, I was just going to say to Lisa, um, I completely agree with you um, about thinking about prevention. You know, we've done a lot this year in terms of trying to provide um, health care and accommodation for people who experience homelessness. And really the next step is for us all um, to think about more, more about how we prevent homelessness. And we know we can. We know we can do it. Um, we know the factors that lead to homelessness. Um, yeah, be very happy to join you on the next um, podcast. That's great. And I think on that optimistic note, we'll we'll end it here. But it's as we say, it's it's good to know that from the work which has been done, there can be positive change, and we can continue on with the co-working and the collaboration which is happening already. So definitely. Hope to have you back with us, Binta, to hear more about what's going on with Find and Treat service, with other work going on in London. And thank you to Lisa and Binta. And we will have our next uh, podcast episode up um, as soon as we can. So we hope to have you back with us. So I'll just say thank you from me and uh, give you, Lisa and Binta, to say your goodbyes as well. Thanks, Alicia. Thanks, Binta. Thanks. Thanks, Lisa and Alicia. Thank you. Enjoyed that.